We're wrapping up this story of David today. And I wish there was a, I wish there was just a clean, and David did this, and it was amazing, and he wrapped the whole thing up, and it's beautiful, and this is the way you end your life, and it's perfect. But it wasn't. And there's a bit of a dichotomy that happens with David at the end of his life. But I think there's something we can, we can learn from it. And so we're going we're gonna to go away from 2 Samuel and we're going to go into 1 uh, Chronicles and read from 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 28. And I'm going to read a decent amount of it. Um, you know, don't fall asleep. That's why I get you to stand up. We're going to read a decent amount of it because I, I need to prove a point here about some of the things David was focused on. So why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to read 1 Chronicles chapter 28. You can find it on the screen or in the Hope Community Church app, on the app store, or that other thing people use. Or you can find it in, um, in the Bible app on your phone. Go to events, find Hope Community Church, and find the notes there as well. First Chronicles chapter 28, say amen if you're ready. Amen. All right. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the kings and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. Then David, King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you're a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel and all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many. He has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts. For I've chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever. If he continues strong in keeping my commands and my rules as he is today. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David, David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple, of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat and the plan 
of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and the surrounding chambers and the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, and for the work of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, for the weight of gold, for all the vessels for each service, the weight of silver vessels for each service, the weight of gold. You get the point? That goes all the way down through verse 19. The details. Pure gold for the forks and basins and cups and golden bowls and the weight. Then verse 20, then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you till all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God and with you and all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. Father, thank you today for your goodness. Thank you for for letting us have a window into what being passionate about you looks like. What benefit your presence is to us. So Lord, we, we pray that just that today, that your presence would be with us above all things. And it will be the thing that we pass on to the people behind us. Thank you for this moment. Pray that you open up our hearts today to receive from you and transform our lives. In Christ's name we pray and everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated. What you will notice if you read First Chronicles is that it leaves out a lot of the mess in David's life. It's more like a highlight reel. It does, it does record David counting a census, counting the military and God being angry with him and causing a plague and David having to repent of that. But it doesn't, First Chronicles doesn't get into the nitty gritty of what Pastor Adam talked about last week about David's son Amnon raping his daughter and then Absalom years later killing him and then Absalom trying to take the throne and David fleeing and then David's other son Adoniah taking the throne right at the end of the David's attempting to take the throne David's officials switching sides back of it's just seemed like chaos but then so that's second into second Samuel so you get the first chronicles and it doesn't really record that now just so you know there's no contradiction here but if you wrote a story about my life my wife would write a different story than you would a really good one albeit different So when we put these two things together, we get this a little bit of tension because David on one hand is living out the consequences of his life and it seems like chaotic. It seems like he's not paying attention. It seems like how can you just lay there and let one of your sons claim the throne when that's, if you read the end of 2 Samuel, you'll find out that, that Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet had to come to him and say, David, Your son, not Solomon, your other son, has tried to claim the throne. 
You've got to appoint Solomon as king or this whole thing's going sideways. You said this is what God wanted. And so you see this kind of chaotic circumstance where David's like, oh yeah, make him king. You've turned to First Chronicles. You start to feel out that, that David was focused on something. It just wasn't what we were expecting. I ask this question a lot because, um, because I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of disabilities you live with. How many perfectionists are in the room? Anybody? I consider perfectionism a disability. Sorry. Um, we have this misconception that if you spend a lot of time in God's presence, it ends up making you perfect. Okay, watch this. All of, most of you grew up with the, with the saying that practice makes you perfect. Actually, I've heard it rephrased in the last 10 years, practice makes permanent. Whatever you practice will become permanent in your life. So if you, if you play baseball, I played baseball growing up. If you play baseball and you practice swinging the bat incorrectly, it will become, swinging the bat incorrectly will become a permanent part of the way you play baseball. Amen? But even if you practice correctly, it never makes you perfect. Because you just have to look at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Like, like what? Most people in the Hall of Fame fail 65, 60, 65% of the time when they're at bat. Is there any other thing in life that we clap for with 65% failure? Not airlines. Not automobiles. You're not like, hey man, what's the reliability on this thing? You'll be back 65% of the time you drive it. Sign me out. That'll get me in the Hall of Fame. So we inadvertently think that, that if, you, if you spend time with God, it will make you perfect on the earth. And so when we read about David, we read the Bible and we read about David and we see this dichotomy in David's life where it seems like he spends massive amounts of time in the presence of God, but yet he does dumb things. Anybody else relate? I prayed a lot last week and did dumb things anyway. And we have this problem because... Because it would be easier for us to say, present time in the presence of God makes you perfect and without sin. This is not true. And so the problem is we inherently believe that. So then we go back to scripture and read about David's life where on one side he's talking about all the time he spent in the presence of God and yet all the failings politically he had with his family and with the nation of Israel then you're going, what, what happened? Was he praying to the wrong God? What, how did that happen like that? Because we never really analyze our lives that way. Because the end of our life hasn't been written yet. We're all planning on going out on top. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm not planning on going out right after a failure. So we read this and we go, how can it be a man after God's own heart? 
just doesn't seem right. And I started thinking about um, focus in life. I don't know, middle age has something, uh, has an effect on, on me anyway. I don't know if anybody else ever experienced this, but middle age started having an effect on me to where you realize, mm, this thing's halfway over. This thing's halfway over. And, um, and they say that the most productive years of your life are between 40 and in your early 60s, the most productive work years of your life between 40 and early 60s. And I'm like, okay, I'm halfway through my life and I am in supposedly the most productive years of my life. And so mm, should be, we got to get it done. I only got a little bit of time left. <clears throat> so what am I going to focus on? What am I going to think about? What am I going to focus on? And, um, and I have a tendency to be task oriented and, and like want to accomplish things and and, and all, the, all those type of things. But yet, when I look at the life of David, uh, I see a problem. Uh, because all the things that I would be focused on, he seemed to neglect. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying it's observation. Like, how politically could you be that, that neglectful that you're just going to lay around and how as a father can you be that neglectful that you're going to, one of your sons rapes one of your, now these are, you have to remember we're translating this, David had many, many wives. So it's not like there was three people in the house. But how can you let that go in your family? Really just never, for years, never seemed to address it. David, how does this happen? How do you do that? How do you, man, why aren't you focused? The issue is this, is that Focus does not mean perfection. And I started out by asking how many of you are perfectionists because what happens is we believe if we focus on the right thing, we'll be perfect. If we do it, especially those of you that are bent towards perfection. And so what I started realizing was this would be a shocker for some of you. I'll never be perfect. And you won't either. None of us will ever be perfect until we're glorified in the presence of God. Amen? Man, could you imagine for the perfectionist in the room closing your eyes for the last time and waking up and being like, finally, I'm perfect. Here's the problem. If I focus on perfection, I can't understand grace. But if I focus on his presence, I may never be perfect. Do you see where I'm going? So what happened with David was, David was nowhere near a perfectionist. David let a lot of things go. David didn't pay attention to a lot of things. But David knew what the grace of God looked like. So the, the problem that we live in in our time is that, is that we translate being with God to equal perfection, and that's not what that means. Being with God gives you grace. Oh, man. Being with God 
gives you the grace for when you're not perfect. And he gives it out abundantly. So if I've got a choice now, I can either focus on his presence and receive grace, or I can focus on perfection and receive nothing. So, so I could... So what, what happens is when we read these stories and we analyze our lives, we always come at it from a point of view of how bad we screwed it up, not how much presence we have. Like, oh, like how could you have done, how, like you, they messed it up and I can't believe they messed it up. And da, 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 da. That's why it's so strange sometimes when you get into a, a, a church that actually knows what grace looks like. Because I remember growing up in a church that was just like, you did it wrong. You did it wrong. You did it wrong. You did it wrong. And I was thinking, bro, I've been praying about it, and I still did it wrong. I don't know what else to do. And then how freeing it was when you realized I did it wrong, and then there was grace for me. I'm not saying we take advantage of that, but I'm saying you're going to need it. So here's what I realized. David focused on presence more than he did perfection. Think about this. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, all the way back at the beginning when we first started talking about this. Samuel goes to the first king, Saul, Saul, and he says, hey, listen, listen, you have turned away from God. You have not obeyed. You've turned away from God. Your heart is not with him anymore. So God's going to take what he gave you away. And Samuel actually says he's going to give it to a man who's better than you. He has searched and he has found a man after his own heart. Now, here's the problem. We tend to look at that, oh, David's a man after God's own heart. That must mean he's perfect. But no, no, no. That's not what it meant. It meant he understood the presence of God. David obviously wasn't perfect. David, if you want to argue about it, was less perfect than me. Because I've never had another woman's husband killed. To my knowledge, it's never happened. So if you want to talk about a scale of perfection, I'm way better than David. But here's the problem. I don't think I understand the presence of God like he did. (laughs) But we're always counting wrongs and rights, not presence. So when we look at David's story, we go, he got it wrong, he got it wrong, he got it wrong, he got it wrong. But God didn't pick him because he was going to get everything right. God picked him because he knew his presence. I'm picking a guy after my own heart. So here's what happens. When David gets in trouble, two weeks ago we talked about it, David and Bathsheba, when he gets in trouble and Nathan comes to him and says, you did this. You not please God with this. David doesn't say, oh man, now I messed up. I'm going to lose the kingdom. I'm going to lose all my money. I'm going to lose. No, 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 no. That's what you and I sometimes would say. David writes a psalm and he says, don't let your presence go from me. He never says, he never says, don't let anybody find out. I can't suffer another political defeat. I can't suffer another. I, I don't want my reputation to get marred. He doesn't say any of that. He says, cast not your presence from me. Don't put me away from you, Lord. So what happens is, in our desire to be right before God, we skip his presence and we try for perfection. Never works. And then I figure out, at the end of the day, I'm imperfect and I'm away from him. 
So in all the mess that David got into, all the mistakes that he made, it was, he was still a man after God's own heart. God never took that label from him. Hmm. He also promised David he would establish his kingdom forever. And guess what? Never took that from him either. Not because he was perfect, because he focused on God's presence. And here's what I want to tell some of you this morning. You're forgiven, but you have to focus on God's presence in order to convince yourself sometimes you're forgiven. It's not perfection that God's looking for. It's his presence that he wants to spend with you. Start thinking, man, David focused on the presence of God. Here's how I know. Here's how I know he did. Um, we got to go to a place in Germany, in Cologne, Germany, last week. Um, and, and I am, trust me when I tell you this, we never talked about going anywhere when I grew up. So I'm still pinching myself all the time we get to do things like this. So we're standing in front of a cathedral with 430-some foot spires in Cologne, Germany. And, and the guide, the tour guide tells us it took 700 years to build this thing. And I thought, well, that sucks. <laughs> I mean, if you don't get a house done in six months in Martinsburg, you or something, you know. We started walking around the building. And I, I've been in the construction trade for a long time. And I'm looking at all the, the, the detail in this cathedral built over 700 years is so mind-boggling. And I was telling my wife and the people we were with, you know, because I'm the smartest guy on the tour, um, <laughs> I, I was telling them that, hey, do you realize that for every detail on this building, I'm thinking all the way back before the first stone was laid. I'm thinking all the way back before the footer was dug, before the basement was dug. I'm thinking all the way back before any of this happened, somebody drew to scale every detail of the building. Because they had stone carvers that were carving, they were carving these gargoyles. I don't know what they put those on there for, but carving all these images and flowers and, 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 and trim on the stone. And it all had to be the same, whether it was the guy who first started carving it or the guy 500 years later who was carving it. They had to go off of something, so they had to have scaled drawings. And I was saying, you know, it could have took 25 years to draw these things. They weren't plugging them into a computer, copy-paste, copy-paste. They were hand-drawing them to scale. And I'm sitting here looking at it. One doorway would blow my mind. Just the detail in one entryway. I'm going, God, how did, how did this happen? How did somebody sit down and draw this? It must have taken forever. Then I read 1 Chronicles 28. And David says, here's what God gave me. I wanted to build it, but he said that I'd shed too much blood he said, he's going to let my son build it. And my job was to hand down to the son the architectural drawings for the whole thing. Now, the cathedral that we looked at at Cologne, Germany, they never said anything about, like, the architectural drawings included the utensils. But if you read First Chronicles 28, David said, I've drawn out for you 
what the building should look like, what its rooms should look like, the details of all these things, how you, who, who should be where, and, and what it should look like, and what it should be made out of, and how it should be made out tall, how wide, how long, how deep. I, I drew all that out for you. By the way, I also, I also told you how much gold you should put in the tables, and, how, and what they should look like, and I, I'm telling you, and, and the cups, and the spoons, and the knives, and the forks. We built this, and we had, but we got plastic wear after it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we went to Walmart, and was like, well, get the thugs, we don't have to think about it. David's saying, what I got from God in his presence. David said, I didn't come up with all this stuff. This is exactly the way God wanted it. It's, it's a throwback to Moses when Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives him all that stuff. And the people are like, where's he been all day? Because Moses is up there in the presence of God. Because the most important thing Moses could have been doing was being in the presence of God for the country. Not being perfect, but being in his presence. And so Moses downloads the Ten Commandments. He downloads, and I'm not talking about slow Wi-Fi. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the pre- being in the presence of God. And God speaking to us and revealing to us. And Moses is doing that. Now we flash forward and, and David's going, hey, Solomon... God gave me the whole thing and I drew it out for you. Here's how much I want the forks to weigh. God told me that. Here's I want the silver table, put this much silver in it. Now, if you're not in the building trades, you might think, well, that's not a big deal. Oh, that's a big deal. There's no architect today that draws out forks. Doesn't happen. Typically don't draw tables. David's saying, the presence of God gave me what it should look like, and I'm passing that on to you. The focus, the focus it took to be that detailed about stuff. So now you see the juxtaposition. You see, second, in the second Samuel, David laying on the bed like Bathsheba and Nathan coming up to him and going, hey man, your son's trying to take over the kingdom. He's like, ah, don't let that happen. Solomon, you're king. Come on. In First Chronicles, he's going, I spent so much time in the presence of God, the most important thing that I could pass on to you. That's what I was focused on. So I started thinking, oh, David had this choice. He could have picked presence or politics. Boy, isn't this fitting today. You know, I started figuring out no matter how many political conversations we have in our house, it will not be something worth passing down. Because <laughs> all that stuff changes. If you, vi- if you ever visit someplace really old, really old, you start to get a you start to get a taste for how much change has happened over the years. And we may think, well, America's got the best political system ever. I can tell you right now, somebody a thousand years ago thought the same thing. And while we may have the best thing going, it doesn't compare to his presence. So David did pick, it seems like, Presence or politics, and he and he did pick. And in and in 
some senses you could say that, that he was a failure politically because at the end of his life, he had all these crazy things happening. Absalom, is, his son, tries to... He, I mean, he actually flees the city, David does. Then his other son, take it over. And he has, he has military people switching sides. It's just chaotic. But let me, let me say this. Because here is the truth about what's happening now. Is that we are being judged on multiple levels. You know that, right? Tweet something and you'll find out. And if you're on those platforms, you may find out that there's a heck of a lot more people that hate you than love you, according to what you say. All right. If we judge David politically, we could deem him a failure at the end of his life. We could. If we judge him according to God's presence, we would deem him a success. Do you see where I'm going with this? So what we have to be careful about is, is how, how we think about being judged. Because we're in a culture now that judges you instantly. I remember growing up where somebody at least had to pick up a landline and call you. Amen? Or they would mail you a judgment. You at least had a weak grace period. Like, well, I didn't even know they were upset. Just got this letter in the mail. Huh. And then it would take another week to mail him the response. And so we're slow rolling this argument. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've talked to my friends that do missions work, and they said, if, if, if uh, the, one of the guys I travel with, he said, it would take six weeks to mail a letter to Africa, and then six weeks to get it back. I'm like, well, I couldn't have been a missionary back then. I mean, just... Now what's happening is we're being judged by the minute. Did I say the right thing? Did I, do, did I post the right emoji? Did I do this? Did I do this? Am I, ooh, did I do it? Ah, and guess what you find out? There is always somebody that thinks you're wrong. Probably more than one. So we start withholding our Christian values. We start withholding what we really think because we're being judged instantly. And it's never been a time like this on the planet where people that have no idea who you are, where you're from, or what your intentions are will judge you. I remember we first started our, uh, bought our business. Uh, I remember somebody on Facebook from California gave us a one star. We don't sell anything over the internet. You have to be at our location to take part. And I thought, what are they doing just randomly getting on Facebook and judging stuff they have no idea about? One star. Some of you have bought into the judgment. Some of you have deemed yourself a failure because other people have said you are a failure. Some of you deemed yourself a failure because whatever you do doesn't look like what it looks like on Facebook or Instagram. Some of you are deemed yourself a failure because you can't dance like they can on TikTok. <laughs> Get 
Can I tell you that if you go by what other people are judging as right, you will always be a failure in someone's eyes. That's the beautiful thing about David. He could have just given up at the end and said, political, just that's whatever. This thing didn't go the way I wanted it to. I made a lot of mistakes. But he didn't let the opinions of others, he didn't let the opinions of his own sons keep him from doing what God wanted him to do. Because he, he valued the judgment of God more than the judgment of people. So my warning to you today is be careful who you let judge you. Now, I let people judge me. Don't get me wrong. I got very close people in my life that I want to judge me. I'm not saying don't be accountable, but I'm saying don't let the crowd judge you. Because the crowd's looking for a mistake. The crowd's looking for failure. The crowd's looking what to point out. So what does God say about you that overrides everything else, overrides every mistake, overrides everything? He says, number one, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Look at your neighbor right now and say, you're forgiven. Told the first service, you weren't planning on forgiving him today, but you just did. Ah! Get over it. You're forgiven. He says, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. He said, if you're faithful and faithful to confess your sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive you your sins. You're forgiven. No one else can hold that thing over you. Twitter can't judge you about it. He's forgiven you. Amen? So when we go back to David's life and says he was an adulterer and he was a killer and he was a terrible politician, God forgave him. End of story. He says you're a child of God. You're a joint heir with Christ. You're a child. God picked you. He picked you. You may not have gotten picked for the 1984 all-star 12-year-old thing, but God picked you. God picked you. How, how and who I let judge me determines what I think about myself. And David didn't let the naysayers impact him. David didn't let his wild sons impact He says the presence of God where I where I know who I am. It's the presence of God. So this is the last thing I'm going to leave you with. When you read First Chronicles chapter 28, you find out what David passes on to his son. And my kids are adults now. And I've, I've thought about this a lot here recently because now they get to make their own decisions. That's scary. And what I realized with David was he passed on God's presence, not the job. Because you know what? I, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier. I've started realizing that everything in life is absolutely temporary. All of us in this building. If this building lasts another 100 years, none of us will be in it. None of you. I don't care if you're 10. You're not going to be here. It's temporary. If you own a business in your family and you're thinking about passing it down, you're, you're a temporary operator of that thing. 
I'm a temporary pastor here at Hope Community Church. At best, temporary. This church has been around 80-some years. Since the 30s. I'm only, I wasn't even, I was born when that, that building over there was built. I'd never even seen the old building. The old building was torn down before I was born. This church has a history beyond me and I have a history after me. Amen? Your work has a history before you and after you. Your family has a history before you and after you. So the best that we get to do is figure out what we're going to pass on to the next play people. And what I've been thinking about lately now that my kids are making their own decisions is, dude, did I pass on the right thing? Did we have too many political discussions at lunch or dinner? Did we have too many job discussions at lunch or dinner? Did we have too many discussions about things that will change and won't even matter? Because at the end of David's life, he looks at Solomon, looks at Israel, and he says his presence is what's important. I failed at some of these things, but what I did get right is the presence of God. He says, Solomon, if you will chase his presence, he'll establish you. And when the Bible says established, it doesn't mean for a moment. It means permanently. It means he will establish you. His presence is not a temporary thing. It's established. His word is not a temporary thing. It's established. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not return void. It's established. It's not going anywhere. So what are we going to pass on as a church? What are we going to pass on as a family? What are we going to pass on as individuals? We're going to pass on things that, that, that could be deemed success or failure. It could be this or could be that, depending on who's judging it. Or are we going to say, you know what? We're going to pass on something that will never, will never go away. It'll never, it'll never depreciate. It'll never deteriorate. It's the presence of God. And if I could pass that on to my kids, if I could pass that on to my grandkids and my great-grandkids, and I'll probably be around for my great-great. It's a chance. So listen to me. If you got young kids in here, I know the job's important. I know the politics are important. I know all that stuff's important. But listen, all that'll change before you die. All that'll change. What won't change is what David passed on. Solomon, I've been in his presence enough to download all this stuff. And my word to you is to do the same exact thing. He said, if you will, will chase him, he will establish you. Not temporary, permanent. And so church, I'm challenging you today. After all the things that we can focus on, all the things that we can think about, all the things that the media is telling us we need to be so important. There's nothing more important. You may not get anything else right in your life. You may, you may in some respects be an abject failure, but I'm begging you today, get this thing right. Get the presence of God right, and your kids will see you forgiven. Your kids will see you set free. Your kids will see you made whole. Your kids will see you imperfect, yes, but in His presence, absolutely. And it'll be the one thing that they can carry on through their whole life with God. The presence of God. There's nothing else that matters. Amen. Come on, stand to your feet. I want you to make that commitment to him this morning. It's his presence. David wasn't perfect by any stretch, but he was really good at the presence of God.
and he was able to pass it on and on and on and on and on. And we're talking about it today. Let's leave something that doesn't diminish and will last through way beyond what we know. The presence, his presence. Father, thank you this It's your presence that we need. It's your presence that makes us Make us good at that, Lord. Nothing else make us good at that. Come on, lift your voice. 